0: This wonderful scripture this morning. We're blessed to hear Dave preach two weeks on this um, these passages. Ezekiel thirty six, twenty four to twenty eight. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land. I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Good morning. It's good to see you all. We're about a quarter full after that first song, and we're full now. I don't know how that happens every Sunday. It's quite amazing. Well, if you haven't been around, we are charging through the book of Ezekiel. And just a reminder of the context, uh, Ezekiel's this prophet of Israel writing 500 years before Jesus, and he's writing to a people who have recently been absolutely devastated by life, they had been disobedient to God for hundreds of years as a people, and because of that, a foreign nation came in and conquered them, destroyed their their holy city, Jerusalem, and carried them off into exile now they 're living as slaves in Babylon, they are hopeless and they are helpless and still stuck in this weird relationship with god and so in, in the second half of Ezekiel, God is Making these beautiful promises that he will one day restore them, bring them back into the land, and bring about this great renewal in them. And, and in this, this chapter especially, we really get this beautiful promise of an inner transformation that he's going to work in his people that really gets at the very heart of the gospel, the, the good news. And as Christians, we see the fulfillment of this passage 500 years later with the coming of Jesus and with the coming of God's Spirit at Pentecost. And so we're looking at these basic gospel truths. And we're we're spending two weeks on this passage. Just a reminder what I said last week. The gospel, which means good news. This is what Christian believes. There's this gap between God and humanity. But the gospel is that in his love, God has reached out to humanity in two ways. First, he has sent his son to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We see what he does in verse 25. Washing us clean. Bringing forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ. That's the first half of the gospel. That's what we focused on last week. The second half of the gospel that we focus on today is this. God not only sent his son, but God sent his spirit to do not for us, but to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Which is, as we see in verse 26, to give us new hearts. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to focus in on verse 26 It begins this way I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I'm still kind of in some introductory comments, but just want to make note that when the Bible uses that word heart or that word spirit, they're talking about uh, the the innermost part of a person, okay? The the center of a person's feeling and thinking and willing, what today we would call a person's core. What's the, deep down, in, in your innermost person, who are you? That's what the Bible refers to when it says heart and spirit. I've always liked the analogy of an iceberg, okay? Uh, some of you have been able to be on boats where you actually see icebergs. I've never seen one in person, but you know you can see these massive icebergs, and you think they're huge above the surface, but we all know that 90% of an iceberg is actually underneath the surface. And it's not a bad metaphor for human beings, okay? All day long, Mark mentioned us being buttoned up, right? We come in here and we present that 10% to one another. We say things, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. We go to work. We interact with our coworkers. We go home and and people see our our actions and our behaviors. But underneath the surface, (laughs) there's all sorts of things going on that people cannot see, There are insecurities, there are fears, there are desires, there are hopes. And underneath the actions that people see, there are motivations that drive those actions uh, that people cannot see. (laughs) But that is the heart. That is the core. That's where the transformation needs to take place. Before I go on in this passage, I just want to acknowledge a couple things. One is this, that Christianity is fundamentally about the heart it is in essence about the core about what is going on underneath the surface and that's not to say the externals are unimportant okay action behavior habits practices those are all very important parts of the christian faith but in essence it is a faith about what is going on underneath the surface what is going on in your heart When Jesus came onto the scene, he is very clear about that. He's always getting people to try to think beyond just mere practices and actions and religious behavior and ask them, what's driving you? What's going on underneath the surface? And the people he had the biggest problem with were the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, who above the surface... Looked really good, right? They were going to their services. They knew their Bibles. They were tithing. They were praying. They looked great. But underneath the surface, Jesus says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Okay, that's not a compliment, okay? On the outside, you're all clean. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bones, okay? He's saying, but it's it's fundamentally about what is going on underneath the service. And, and we could we could probably... Every church, I'll just say this, every church has people who all their lives have been doing the externals of the faith. They've been going to church, they've been reading their Bibles, they've been in studies. These are respectable men and women who have been doing the outward stuff all their lives, but there hasn't been this deep inner transformation. And a deep inner transformation has to occur for a person To follow Jesus Christ, in in the essence of what that means. And it's something, as we looked at last week, that only God himself can do. (laughs) No amount of discipline can fundamentally change the orientation of the heart. Only God, by his spirit, can change a person's inner core. And the good news is that's precisely what he promises to do in Ezekiel 36. And that's what many of us in this room can attest to, the fact that he has done in our hearts. So today we're going to look at this inner transformation, what goes on beneath the surface, and just talk about it. It's a pretty simple message today. Uh, We've got this really basic metaphor that, that God gives us here, and I want to focus in on it. I want to focus in on the second half of verse 26, where God says... Here's what it means for me to give you a new heart. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is a verse that God used very personally in my life, probably 20 years ago about. And I love this image of getting a a, a stony heart removed and and being given a fleshy heart. And so I just want to talk about this. What is the heart of stone? What is the heart of flesh? What does this work that only God can do? What does it look like? And I invite you as as I talk about the heart of stone and the heart of flesh to look at your own life, to look at your own heart, to ask yourself, have I seen some of this going on in my life? All right, so let's start with the heart of stone. I will remove from you, yeah, I did it, your heart of stone. <laughs> I was like, do I have a pretty stone heart? You don't want like a pretty heart. That's sort of still attractive, but um, God is saying, I'm going to remove this heart of stone. I want to ask it, what does the heart of stone look like? And I could just talk about stones and make a metaphor about stones, but I want to ask, in the context of Ezekiel, <laughs> What do we think God means to these people when he says, you have hearts of stone? And let me suggest two qualities of the heart of stone that we see in this book. The first is the most obvious. It is a heart of stone is a heart that is... Hard, right? It's hard. And that's what God said at the very beginning of this book, chapter 2. He says to Ezekiel, The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. They are hard-headed. They are hard-hearted people. They are hard. Stones are hard, meaning their hearts are not soft. The heart of stone is a heart where, where God's truths just bounce off what i'd say they don 't get inside somehow they don 't penetrate there 's not a softness that absorbs and takes, and so these truths sink in and I mean that the good truths don 't sink in like his his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness those are theoretical things that don 't get into the core, and then of course, some of his stronger things, like his commands his his uh, warnings they don 't they just don't get inside, and that's what you see with Israel. God's grace did not get absorbed, and his commands and his warnings would not get absorbed. Their hearts were dead, if I can use that word. They were unfeeling to the things of God. Now, let me suggest that the root issue of the hardness is the issue of human pride. And what I mean, I mean a posture that fundamentally says, I will decide for myself how to live my life. I mean, that kind of pride. This this is not necessarily a person that's boasting about how great they are, but it's a a fundamental decision in the core that says, I will decide for myself how I'm going to live my life. And I say pride because that's what we see in the original sin of of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. That's what was at the core of their sin. God put them in this beautiful garden. Right? He gave them all these great gifts. He put one tree there. He said, don't touch it. Don't eat it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what he was saying is, I don't want you guys to decide for yourselves what is good and evil. Okay? You guys trust me. Trust that I know best. Trust that I know what is good for you. Trust that I know what is bad for you. Trust me in that. I will bless your lives and give you amazing things. And they looked at that tree and they said in their pride, no. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We want to decide for ourselves what we think will lead to the good life, as Mark described. it. We know what will lead to the good life, and we want to decide it for ourselves. That's the pride that leads to this hardness. Because when you make that decision, by definition, you are no longer open to somebody else telling you how you ought to live your life. Right? You're not open to a God's, let me show you how to live. No, I I have decided for myself. It's about control. I want to call the shots of my own life. And so I'm not interested. I'm not I'm not fully open to God's commands. I'm not open to He calls me to live a certain way, financially or relationally, or sexually, or or anyway, but I'm I'm gonna kinda decide for myself. How to live, and so I'm not open to his commands, and and the other thing is I'm not I'm not open to his grace, his desire to forgive me, his desire to be gracious and merciful. Because if I've got myself in in, in a situation, my pride says I got to get myself out of the situation. So I don't know how to receive just a grace that I didn't work for. There's just a hardness to his grace. Have you ever had someone say, or have you ever said, I know that God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. Wait, you've heard that? Okay, what, what's behind that? Uh, think about that for a second. I know that the living God of the universe forgives me, but I can't seem to forgive myself. Okay, we wouldn't think of it in this, but there's a pride underneath that. So so you know better than the living God of the universe who should be forgiven, who shouldn't be forgiven. So there's there's a resistance. There's a hardness to God. Now, the second thing about the heart of flesh that you probably wouldn't come up with just by thinking about, or the heart of stone, just by thinking of stones, but if you think about the book of Ezekiel, it's not just a hard heart. It is a divided heart. And the reason I think that is I go back to Ezekiel 11. This is almost word for word, our passage today, with one change. God says, I will give them... An undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Word for word, but in our passage, it says, I will give them a new heart. So I take that to mean, when God says, by new heart, what I mean is an undivided heart. Meaning, the heart of stone is is a heart that is divided. It's not just hard, but it's, it's divided. Let's go back to our our stone here. See, there's different little rocks and granule things. I picked one that's sort of, you know, got multiple kinds of stones in it. The heart of stone is divided because there's all these different desires that are clamoring for its attention. The, The heart of stone is a busy, crowded, congested heart. In Ezekiel, the issue was idolatry. Remember? That was kind of the key sin. It's not that they didn't believe in God at all. It's that they believed in God, but they also believed in lots of gods because they made a decision. We are going to decide how to live our lives. We're going to decide what's going to lead to happiness. And we think that if we go after various gods, somehow if we can kind of pick and choose from the gods and and we can bring together an amalgamation of of thoughts about who can help us and, and work out our lives, that will lead to flourishing existence. And so what happened was their passion and love for Yahweh, for God, was diluted. It was it was crowded out by all these other desires. And that's the other thing about the heart of stone. When you decide, I'm going to decide for myself what's going to lead to a good life, you just start pulling from all the things that you think will lead to your own happiness. And our hearts, when we do that, get overcrowded. They get busy. They get divided. Jesus has a parable about a sower who sows seed. In a, in a field, and it lands in some some uh, soil, and at first there 's a beautiful plant that grows up, right But you know the story of what happens soon, all these thorns start growing up around it and choke out the plant that had grown and that is the divided heart it 's not that i, I don 't believe in God on paper. It's just that my heart is alive to so many things. It's, it's sort of alive to God, but it's also alive to all the things that my culture and, and the world is telling me, and, and I've, I've just pieced together this whole thing. And so, and so I just don't have a passion for God. I, I believe on paper that it exists, but I, I step in here, we sing these songs, and they're just words on a screen. I a screen. I, I, I read the Bible, it's just words on paper, but there's no passion. There, there's, no, there's no joy in it. Because my heart is so divided with all these other things. That makes sense? So, that is the heart of stone. It is hard and it is divided. And before we move to the heart of flesh, I think it's just important to acknowledge this is the heart that we all inherit from our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve. <laughs> Okay, ever ever since Adam and Eve made that decision, every human being is born into this world, the Bible would say, with this kind of heart. Parents of young kids, it's very important that we recognize that those precious little angels that we are raising have these hearts of stone (laughs) within them, that we have to shape and grow and point towards God. And unless the God of the universe does something to these hearts, they will remain hearts of stone. And you can live a very respectable life with a heart of stone, scripture would say. And we have examples of that all over the New Testament. But we inherit this. We, it is necessary that God do something in the core. So let's look at what does he do. Well, of course, he says, I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Um, this probably won't come across to you guys all that great, but I love this painting. Um, this is a French painter, Christian painter. Uh, this is actually called New Heart in French. I can't pronounce it. What is it? Corneva, something like that. Um, <laughs> so it's hard to see, but you can see the contours of like a... Of a a heart shape, kind of this liquidy heart shape. In the middle, you can see a, a cross, the, probably the cross of Christ. And you see these things swirling. I see what looks to be like, like doves or the, the spirit. So he's trying to get at this This heart has been transformed. What I love about this is it's so liquidy. You know, it's like, it's fluid, it's soft, it's so alive compared to the, uh, the heart of flesh or the heart of stone that we just looked at. So what does God mean by heart of flesh? Well, I think it's obvious. First, he means hearts that are soft to me. Uh, They're receptive. They're responsive. They're alive. And the key thing that God has to do to give us hearts of flesh is he has to break the root of pride. He has to do something in our lives that, that that part of us that wants control, that wants to decide how to live our own lives for ourselves, he has to do something to break that pride, to bring us to this place of surrender, of brokenness and surrender and willingness to offer up our lives to God. And my guess is many of us, especially those of you that became Christians as adults, If you could tell your testimony, a lot of it would be that you came to faith through a period of crisis or trial or pain. And that shouldn't surprise us because usually those are the kinds of things that God will use to break that prideful, controlling streak in us. So he has to break the root of pride. And when he does that, there's a softness that emerges. There's a a receptivity to him. His, His truths begin to penetrate. They begin to stick. We begin to feel them. Our hearts begin to beat the way that God's heart beats. His commandments, we become soft to them. Look at verse 27. Look at what he says in the next verse. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'm actually going to, my spirit's going to move you so that the things I've always asked of you, I will enable you to do that because my spirit will be at work. Before they were just words on a page. Words on stone tables, but I'm going to take that law, I'm going to write it in your heart so that you begin to do the things that I ask of you. And when you don't do my commandments, there's a new softness, there's a new conviction. Before you could do things and your heart was calloused. You, you could be caught in persistent things that were wrong, and you just kind of keep going. But, but when my spirit enters you, there's this new softness, there's this new grieving of, of what you're doing that's against my will. Not in a self absorbed, shameful, guilt sort of way, but a genuine conviction of, ah, oh, this is not what you want for me, Lord. It's not what I want for me anymore. So there's a softness to my commands. And, of course, there's a softness to my grace, my mercy. My love for you, my forgiveness, these truths that maybe you've heard all your life that God loves you, that there's no condemnation, that were just theoretical. When I transform your heart, they get inside of you and they become deeply, deeply personal. There's a great passage in Romans 8 that talks about the Spirit entering our lives. And Paul says this to Christians. He says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. God has adopted you. And by the spirit, we cry, Abba. That's first century for daddy. We cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Here's what he's describing. When the spirit of God enters your life and changes your heart, you begin to experience the living God, not as some distant God creator out there, but as your dad. And his spirit starts talking to your spirit and says, hey, your father loves you. He forgives you. No, he really forgives you. There's no condemnation anymore. He delights in you. Some of those verses we, we read, He he delights to be gracious to you. You begin to experience yourself as God's daughter, as God's son, not theoretically, but from the heart. All that to say, our hearts become soft to God, to his commands, but also to his grace. It starts to get inside. And it's hard to describe unless you've experienced, but it comes deeply personal. So It's the only way I know how to say it. And of course, he gives us an undivided heart. Before, we had all these passions, and, and at some point, God enters our life, and he reveals to our hearts, I am the only true God, <laughs> and there is nobody as great and beautiful and holy and magnificent and powerful and gracious as me, and our hearts, in some deep way, say, yes, you are what I want more than anything else, more than my comforts, more than my control, more than people's approval, more than wealth. I like those things, but I want you more than anything. You are not just one of many. You are my one and only. And sure, my heart will still be tempted towards these things. But at essence, I want you. I want you more than anything else. And when push comes to shove, I will will choose you. When push comes to shove, I will choose you over anything else. Because you have given me an undivided heart. A heart that is simple. A heart that has a single deep passion within it. That is the heart of flesh. Not a perfect heart, (laughs) but a heart that is soft. A heart that is united in a passion for God. So I thought I would end, rather than continuing to try to describe this, I thought I'd give you some examples of what this looks like in people's lives. What does it look like when God steps into a person's life and transforms them from the inside out? And what we did this week, uh, we have a Thursday morning staff study where we go through the passage that I'll be teaching either this week or the following week. And I asked our staff, and they will remain remain nameless in this, but I said, tell me about your own story. Tell me about your own conversion story. Or, Or if not a conversion, tell me that season in your life where God did a deeply transforming work in your heart. And so we just shared for an hour. And there was um, some tears. There was just It was so beautiful. It was so fun to just hear the stories of how God has worked in such unique and specific ways in each one of us. And I wanted to try to give you just... I wanted to capture a little bit of that for you. And I'd encourage you to think about your own life, your own story, and how, how God has uniquely worked in your core. So let me just share a couple of these with you. Uh, one person described it as... As having received a new inner freedom, and I'm going I'm to quote, but these are my, obviously, my quotes of this person's statements. I had this need to hyper-control everything in my life, which caused anxiety and fear. And God brought me to a place of finally surrendering control. And I found such freedom in giving over control to God. So they experienced it as a new freedom. Another person experienced it as a a new conviction. I came to this place where I had this deep conviction over my whole life and all the decisions I was making. So I just took time. I just confessed everything I could think of and offered everything in my life up to him to do whatever he wanted to do with it. After that, I started to experience a huge change. Before then, it felt like Christianity was about my pursuit of God. After that, it felt like God was the one pursuing me. I love that. (laughs) one described it as a new obedience Uh, I had grown up in church all my life and at some point in my late teens I decided I just wanted a break from the faith Uh, what this person described as time off for bad behavior I like that (laughs) description many of us can relate to that and then went on to say and God at some point just came in and changed my heart and said right, it's time to start obeying me and walking my way and I did one person described it as uh, having new ears to hear. It was as if I began to hear God's voice in my heart for the first time. Before then, the Bible had been words on a page, but now it was as if someone was speaking to me through these words. Love that. It became personal. Another person described it as having new eyes to see. I don't know how to describe it other than to say God gave me new eyes to see. The world looked completely different to me. Life was vibrant. It was full of life. I began to grieve things I had not grieved before. I had a deep tenderness for those in this world going through pain. And I began to find great joy in things I had not found joy in before. Another person described it as receiving this new gift of knowledge. God gave me a new hunger to learn. I just started consuming everything. Another one was moving from duty to delight. My life before then had been driven by obligation and guilt, but God stepped in and I began to experience his forgiveness deep within my heart. He moved me from a life of duty to a life of delight and joy. One, a new relationship. My faith went from something that was merely a cultural and intellectual thing to a relationship of intimacy and with God and one last one. Each one of these stories has a you know two hour story that goes with it of course. Described it just as a rescue. God rescued and recovered me. I had pushed God away for so long, I thought there's no way I can crawl back to him now. It would feel like an insult to him. And he just stepped in and rescued me and held me and recovered me. Not those great just little windows into people's lives. And so many of us in this room, you could share your own story and there'd be all these common themes, but each story would also be deeply unique and personal and it looks different. Obviously, some of us are second generation Christians. We grew up in the faith, so we may not have this, you know, you know darkness to light kind of story. Um, we've always believed. And yet there's still these things that God has done in our lives throughout the journey that are deeply personal, that things that only his spirit can do that no human being can do for us. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I don't know how this strikes you this morning. Let me suggest there's two really obvious responses (laughs) to this passage. One would be this, and both of these are appropriate, would just be today to just step back and thank God for what he's done in your life to spend some time, I'll give you a couple seconds in a minute, just remembering, remembering those moments where God has done deep inner work in your heart and just thanking him again. And it's amazing how quickly we forget this. We get back into life and we're just in the grind and we forget, no, God, you did such great work. And so today might be a day just to step back and remember and say thank you. And maybe even to share it with somebody. I mean, that's what we, we came away with, like, why don't we do this more often? Why don't we talk about our stories with each other more often? And so maybe you, you want to share it with someone. That's a way to remember it. And then the other response would just be to, to look at your own heart and acknowledge, uh, as you hear this description, maybe all the work that God still has to do in you, <laughs> if I can put it that way. And we would all have plenty that we'd say, God, when I look inside, yes, you've done some work. But man, there's a lot of work to be done. And so maybe today's a day where you say, Lord, I, I need to just confess where my heart is with you right now. And so I'll give you a minute to do that too. Just here's, what I, here's where I see hardness. Here's where I see deadness in my relationship with you. And the reality is we can't change our own hearts. We can't, we can't miraculously get inside our own hearts and change them. Only God can do it. So what we can do is we can acknowledge it, Lord. Here's, here's what I see, confess it, and then look to God. Say, God, I need you to do what only you can do. And so I am waiting on you, and I am asking of you to do what only you can do. So let's pray, and let's just create a little bit of space to do that this morning together. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, fathers, we consider your words, your promise to bring an inner transformation underneath the surface at our very core. First, we want to acknowledge where we've seen you do that. And, and let's just take a moment to remember. Some of you will have specific days in mind or seasons of life. But just take a moment to remember the work that God has done, some deep work that he did in the past, inner work in your heart. And just take a moment to remember it, to relish it, and to give God thanks for it. And Father, we also just acknowledge there's so much work left to be done in our hearts. Work that really only you can do. And so we take a minute to just be honest (laughs) about where our hearts are. To acknowledge the places where we need you to do the work that only you can do. And to simply look to you and ask you. Remembering your promise, you say, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open." That the Father longs to give his spirit to those who ask. And so we take a moment to ask. I pray that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of, of all the fullness of God. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Let's stand together.